Good morning. Um, Constantina Malia here with back with Boldly Feminine after a hiatus. But it's my great pleasure to introduce you today to John Hagel. John has been a thought leader of the Silicon Valley and some of the most important think tanks there are. Um, he is the retired co-chairman for Dilawat, LP Center for the Edge. He's got over 40 years of experience as the management consultant, author, speaker, and entrepreneur in the Silicon Valley. He has served as a senior vice president of strategy at Atari and is the founder of two Silicon Valley startups. He's the author of The Power of Pull, Net Gain, Net Worth, Out of the Box, and The Only Sustainable Edge, plus five more books. So a prolific author, uh, prolific participant in the beginnings and, and to this day in, in the Silicon Valley and its influence globally. Um, his most current and perhaps relevant to the fast-paced world we live in, his book is now Beyond Fear, which was published in 2021. John's got a bunch of uh, degrees, which encompass a BA from Wesleyan University, a PhD in philosophy from Oxford University, a JD and MBA from Harvard University. And the impressive diversity of John's interdependent interests and expertise tie together his ability to stand as a futurist. That, to me, is what's so fascinating about his, the way his mind works. It's always looking forward. And a trusted advisor in both the digital and entrepreneurial space. To that point, he is accredited with coining the term infomediary, which seems to time beautifully with the theme of his South by Southwest presentation in March in Austin, Texas. So John, as we begin this conversation, um, I would love to start off with letting you rift on that convert, that presentation you did at South by Southwest. If you could just contextualize it briefly. Yes, yeah, so it was focused on the, the theme was return on attention. And in a business context, uh, Companies always focus on return on attention. It's how much do they have to spend to get a minute of attention from a customer. I was suggesting that we need to shift our focus and focus on the return on attention of the customer. How much value is the customer getting per minute of attention? And in a world where there are more and more things competing for our attention, um, it's the, I believe the businesses that win, that create the most value, are going to be the ones that focus on return and attention for the customer. And in that context, I talked about the concept of the intermediary. You can also think of it as a trusted advisor that can help customers to increase their return on attention uh, by getting to know them extremely well. And based on that knowledge of who that person is, helping them to connect with the most relevant resources at the right time to add the most value to their lives. And I think that's a huge opportunity that still be addressed. I would agree. I myself, of course, as you know, I'm a designer. That's my how I pay my rent <laughs> and bills. Um, but of course, I study other businesses as comparisons. Um, and Apple has always fascinated me because I find there's an inherent respect for the consumer in the way the products are designed. 
in the way the packaging is being created. So much attention to detail. The opportunity to use different fonts when you're writing a message or crafting something. Um, So many tools that allow you to individuate. So if I'm going to compare that to what you just said, that's a company that became the infomediary in a way, but the trusted advisor, and that they're giving overtly at least, the consumer something that they didn't even know they wanted before they wanted it. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, certainly I think Steve Jobs was very clear that you don't want to ask the customer what they want because the most value are things they're not even aware of yet. And so looking ahead to anticipate what are the big needs of the customers and how can we address them was his key driving focus in developing his uh, products and I think led to significant success. Um, is, is the business community in the Silicon Valley receptive to this train of strategy you're introducing? Uh, not yet. Uh, I think that um, the challenge is that most Silicon Valley businesses, virtually all, are uh, built around an advertising or commission-based model. The person who pays the bill is not the consumer, it's the advertising or the vendor who's getting a sale and paying a commission out of that sale. And so the loyalty of the, the companies and the business is very much to those who are paying the bill versus to the consumer. They'll tell the consumer whatever the the advertiser wants or whatever the vendor wants. So that we can sort of extrapolate that to our current state of government, right? Oh, yeah. That is a lobbyist and that is big business and that's who the government caters to and not the the citizens, right? Right. It's who's paying the bills and who's donating the money. Um, I already, I, I'm, by the way, I'm so impressed by your website as a business person yeah. who also has a website. Um, cause I can't imagine how much time you spend to constantly update it and, and, and import new information cause it's prolific. Um, so kudos. Thank yeah. Thank um, <laughs> impressive. Um, and so you have a reading list that you've posted there with that, you know, some excerpts from the books. And as I read through that list, I couldn't help but notice um, that all the authors were female. And you yourself direct attention to that for anybody who had missed it at the end. Um, and so you said, my worldview of women, is it just a coincidence that this list is female driven? And I don't believe so. I'm quoting you here. I believe it's an interesting indicator of the profound differences that define the feminine archetype and the masculine archetype in our societies around the world. Women who represent the feminine archetype are much more likely to focus on deeper long-term relationships, adopt a holistic approach to understand the world around us, and embrace change as a powerful catalyst for growth and learning. Embrace change. You are the futurist. This would be like preaching to the choir, right? (laughs) Am I putting it correctly? Well, I, I hope I'm not just preaching to the fire. I hope I'm preaching to people who are yet 
resisting change and rate of change. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it's challenging. I think that uh, the, the um, as I've written about, there, there are some long-term forces that are reshaping our economy and society and creating mounting performance pressure. And I think it's the result is more and more of us are experiencing fear. And, uh, if you feel fear, while it's understandable, it's very limiting as an emotion. You begin to um, become less trusting of others. You shrink your time horizons. You become more risk averse. You resist change. And so I think the um, in a world of more rapid change, if you're resisting change, good luck. You're going to be marginalized. So I think uh, it's so just like the rapidity with all of the accelerated rate at which this is happening. Yes, that's part of the part of the mounting performance pressure is the change is accelerating and the things we thought we could count on are no longer there. So what, what's an example scary. of that? Things that we count on that are no longer there. Oh, I don't know, things in our neighborhoods, things in uh, our society. Uh, it's it just depends on the individual, but I think, you know, Things that we were holding on to have just disappeared. And so it's, again, I think it's understandable that it's very scary and fear is a natural reaction. So, would you suggest, are we, I'm going to give you another question here. Would you suggest then that the majority of people do not adapt well? The majority. It's the few, it's the 1%, 5%, 10% that are adapters or early adopters. You know, I guess I'm an optimist about humans. I think we're all early adopters. Um, you know, I, I suggest to people, let's go to a playground and let's look at children five or six years old. Show me one that's not driven to explore and to adopt new things and experience new things. We all had that as children, as human beings. Problem is, today, the problem is we live in societies and cultures where that's crushed over time. And we begin to resist change and fight the change versus embrace it. I think we all have the potential to embrace the change. And I think you've also addressed um, how that fear of change and the and the suppression of curiosity is entrenched in the educational system. And that's when you start to break the spirit and break yeah. schools. No, my, my, again, when I suggest go to a playground with the children, young children, what happened to them? Well, they went to school. And the key message in school was listen to the teacher, pay attention, memorize everything the teacher says, and then show on the exams that you've memorized it. Right. And I which think is, that was to prepare us for the work environment that we're going into. Just listen to the boss, do what the boss says, follow the manual, don't deviate. Right. And I think it's uh, But that's also part of becoming, adhering to narcissism, right? That's a narcissistic family system, a dysfunctional family system where you appear to authority. And I think it was Noam Chomsky that said, there is no legitimate authority. All authority is <laughs> illegitimate. 
right? And and how do you convince a child or teach a child, more well said, I guess, that they have the right to dissent and to follow their own instincts? Well, you have to teach it to them. I mean, again, I think the problem is that in our schools, we're telling them they don't have the right to dissent. Don't ask too many questions. Don't, you know, get distracted. Just listen and memorize. So having gone through like some onerous educational systems yourself, I mean, you've gone to some of the top on the planet. Um, How did you survive that? Well, interesting story. I, um, in third grade, I made a great discovery, which was that I could forge my mother's signature. No. And, (laughs) And I started writing notes to my teacher asking for Johnny to be excused from class that day because he had a doctor's appointment. Terrific. I became, genius. I became known as the sickliest child in third grade. <laughs> That's so genius. Oh, my goodness. And how I long did that last you? All the way through school? Uh, pretty much. I mean, I, in different forms all the way through school, but I rarely went to class. And um, I was very resistant to the authorities that uh, so were driving. Did you, did you survive Oxford and Harvard by skipping school? Yeah, no, it's uh, again long story, but in law school, I went the first day of class. There was this professor who was they they actually did a movie on uh, called uh, I'm blanking on the name of it, but he basically picks one student in the first day of class, and he spends forty five minutes humiliating that student question after question after question Hmm. until the student just breaks down. And I went through that class. It was an actual class in in Harvard Law School. And I turned to the person next to me and said, how much of your grade is dependent on attendance or participation in class? And the answer I got was actually none of it. It was totally based on a final exam. And the professor grade the exam anonymously, so they don't even know who did the exam. That was the last day I went to class. Good shot. <laughs> I became known as the Phantom of Harvard Law School. People kept asking, where is John Hagel? So you were the Phantom of Harvard Law School, and what were your grades like? Pretty awesome, <laughs> I would assume. Reasonable. I mean, Reasonable. I was in honors, honors grade, and I actually wrote, wrote my first two books while I was at Harvard Law School. So <laughs> Just for I, chump change. Yeah. Spent my time doing things that were productive. What peer group have you found? Like I, it's intellectual envy that you've hosted roundtables at the Aspen Institute, you know, um, and the Santa Fe Institute. How much fun is that or not? No, it's great. I mean, I, you know, one of my favorite quotes, I forget who said it, is that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Right. And you need to find rooms where there are much smarter people where you can learn. And so that's been something that's driven me from the very beginning. Is and it's one of the things you were speaking of in several of your interviews as well. This thing, you keep reiterating this, like you're going to find your peer group. You're going to find your tribe. That's when people really thrive, right? Because as we are saying, it's ping pong, right? You just get to <clears throat> bounce ideas off of each other. And one's going to excel at one thing and one the other, and there's strength in numbers. And 
I guess that's why the Silicon Valley became an incubator. Yeah, it was uh, a fascinating one of the books that I, I quoted is uh, a book by a professor at Berkeley, Emily Saxinian, Regional Advantage. And she focused on the culture that emerged in Silicon Valley as a way to explain its continuing success. And it was this constant drive to learn. It was partly, you know, in Silicon Valley, if you're with a company for more than two years, you're deeply suspect. What's the matter? Don't you have ambition? Don't you want to learn more? Don't you want to experience new things? Constant mo movement through different companies. So you're getting exposed to many different environments and, and challenges and problems. And, uh, and then there's a culture of, you know, connecting with others socially. You know, you go to a, a, a restaurant or a bar and one of the first things somebody in Silicon Valley will do when they're talking to a stranger is, is start to share a problem that they're wrestling with, that they have no idea how to answer and asking for help, saying, I need some Love advice. That. So a Socratic conversation is par for the course if that's where you, that's your trajectory. Like yeah. if you want to advance, you're, this is fascinating. There's a... There was a book that I read a few years ago, something like that, called Socratic Conversations or Conversations with Socrates. And this guy went around the world creating these Socratic roundtables. And he would just mm -hmm. gather like 10, 12 people, put a problem on the table, and they would beat it to death for like a week. And then he mm -hmm. would move on and do it somewhere else. It reminds me, there's a great quote from Pablo Picasso many decades ago, who said computers are absolutely useless. All they can do is provide you with answers. And what he meant was the really important thing are the questions. Yes. What are the questions? Yes, agreed. Yeah. And you and agree, I can see that in your eyes. Learning. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So as uh, the last part, um, what does conscientious conservatism and consumerism say to you above and beyond the obvious? Because I came up with that phrase to inspire a collaborative, easily actionable and interdependent initiative. No, there's a lot of big words in there. Um, that would inform, educate, and bring our unsustainably consumer-driven society and norms towards a reversal of that. Yeah, no, it's an interesting framing, I, you know, um, me, it, the, the key is encouraging people to increasingly focus on what's the most un, important unmet needs that I have and really understanding what those unmet needs are. And then, uh, as you try to address those unmet needs, reflecting on what you've experienced and learning as you go so that you can become even more effective in addressing those unmet needs. And that's something that I think, unfortunately, in our consumer society, we're all just driven to buy more things and show off more things. And we rarely step back and really ask that important but question. Again, again, for some of the research I did for a marketing study, Gen Z is the by far the most educated, conscientious generation the planet's ever seen. So there is a reversal and germination. And 
it took is like having too much cake. It took having too much cake for that to happen, right? Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. I think, uh, unfortunately, even Gen Z is consumed with fear and, um, you know, the uh, rate of suicide. Yes. Uh, Rampant suicide, they, right? Yeah. I, it's just very, very unfortunate that, uh, it's affecting more and more people around the world. I think the I did a, a I dug into some history on Olympians and Olympic history and Olympic athletes. Mm. Mm. Um, I was an interview I was supposed to have in May that that fell apart. But what was really really shocking was a level of suicide. Not just the level of suicide was as astronomically high, but the gruesome nature they chose to suicide by far. Like anyway. they got to a point where life had no purpose, and I'm just going to butcher this body that I've put so much time and effort into using as this tool. Um, it, it, that to me was the the analysis I made from it. It's like why why would you exit like that? You know. Yeah, um, yeah. So that could be another metaphor for what we're seeing. You know, when you push somebody to an extreme and say you're worthless unless you do this. So yeah. what are your, what's option B? There isn't really one, right? Unless you're extremely oh. resilient. Yeah. Well, I think, unfortunately, again, there's more and more effort to diminish people and make them feel like they're just uh, out there listening to others. And Unimportant. Really yeah. yeah. Well, if you take away their voice, which is what our government has done, you know, it doesn't mean anything to vote, seems. <laughs> yeah. um, well, then, what? Where, where are you? You're going to live on a mountaintop, isolate yourself from society. Like I chose to have the podcast. I started boldly feminine because June of last year, um, because I have quite a far reach on social media, I was protesting the decision of Roe versus to reverse Roe versus Wade, and the consequence was to be shadow banned. I was punished, and I still can't post any vocal. Um, posts on certain platforms (laughs) and so I was like okay good for you I'll start a podcast then you can't shut me down on YouTube and you can't shut me down on podcast platforms Um, but again it was it's like a thorn uh, it's like a rose evolving thorns to avoid the deer eating them like I don't know if you knew this Roses actually grow bigger, harder thorns if there's a large deer population to avoid being eaten. So you develop resilience. You find a way to circumnavigate the situation. Hopefully that's something that would be more useful to train children to do than regurgitating numbers, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you for being part of this conversation this morning. It's been a joy. I, um, I'm just fascinated by the digital universe, and you've been there since its inception almost. Um, what has been the most uplifting part of being part of that ecosystem? 
and what's being the most disheartening part of being part of that ecosystem? Boy, um, you know, we're talking about the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, to me, what one of the things that drew me here over 40 years ago was the sense of optimism that prevails in Silicon Valley. Everyone is focused on opportunity in the future, amazing things that we can accomplish with all this exponentially improving technology. And I think that's um, very energizing and, and draws out my optimism. And I'm very grateful for that, for sure. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think the Silicon Valley goes through stages. There's um, one stage, and I, I remind people that the most most of the successful entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley were not born in the United States. Never, never mind Silicon Valley. They came from outside the United States to be part of this opportunity. They were excited about it. And uh, over time, I think we go through cycles where people start to come just because they want to make more money. Um, and then we go through these bubbles and things crash and the people who are left are those who are still driven by the opportunity to make right. a difference in the world. And they're not opportunists. They're, they're, no. they're explorers. They're explorers and yeah. they're excited about the problems and challenges. Well, let's end this with hail to the explorers. <laughs> hail Very to cool. the obliteration of fear. And hail to the union of like-minded, elevated society right wonderful absolutely thank you just so much john i look forward to the next conversation i appreciate your interest thank you